0: Imagine there's no heaven It's easy if you try
1: Welcome, my name is Anne Wilson and it's my pleasure to host the Emerge Australia podcast series in which we speak to people impacted by and associated with MECFS and long COVID. We acknowledge the traditional owners of the lands on which we meet and pay our respects to elders, past, present, emerging and anyone listening today. If we focus for a moment on John Lennon's iconic song, Imagine, I wonder if we can imagine a world where there is no discrimination or stigma, a world where the voices of those suffering invisibly in silence are heard, seen and addressed, a world where we have a cure for ME-CFS, Or, at the very least, a biomarker or diagnostic test. Imagine all the people. Today, we talk with Lynn Harris, who has been caring for her eldest son, Dan, for over three years. He has just turned 34. Prior to being a carer for Dan, Lynn was a full time junior primary school teacher. She taught six-year-old children how to read. Mother of two to Dan and Mitch, Lynn has needed to transform her life to deliver the required 24-7 nursing home care as ordered by Dan's medical team. Dan should be at the peak of his working life, building wealth and raising a family, but he's unable to do any of these things. In fact, he's unable to do anything for himself. But I'll let Lynn tell us about Dan's journey and the impact this has had on her life and that of her family. Lynn, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with us today. It's an absolute honour to have you with us. Thanks, Anne. Thanks for inviting
2: me. Um, and sorry, I get a little bit emotional just even imagining if Dan was well. Um, it's tough. It's a tough gig. It's, um, I read an article yesterday where someone said um, there's no score on suffering. If someone's saying they're suffering, then they are. And witness a Dan's suffering on a daily basis is um, it's eroding. Um, it's really tough.
1: I can't begin to imagine, I know that we've spoken before in times of crisis, Um, you know, I can't begin to imagine just how tough it is for you as a mother in particular. Um, Perhaps you could start by telling us a little bit about you. Um, Well, my friends call me.
2: A delusional optimist, <laughs> and <laughs> I'm I'm starting to lose my um, ever-present optimism. It, it's has been eroded a bit because um, of Dan's illness and witnessing that, and the whole kit and caboodle that goes with caring for someone who has an illness that isn't widely recognised and accepted and has quite a bit of stigma attached to it. So I feel like I'm forever telling this story to try and make people aware. But because he's so unwell, he is invisible. He can't tell his story and would probably prefer not to But because he's a very private person, but I feel it needs to be told because I'm sure there's lots and lots and lots of Dans out there that have been cared for by family members or loved ones and they can't advocate for themselves. They can't say, um, we need help. We actually need someone to look into this illness and help us because it doesn't get better. I heard Jane say something about our journey yesterday and I thought you know it's not really a journey it's just like an a loop we just go round and round in circles a journey implies that there's a beginning and an end destination whereas I feel like we're just going round in circles or marking time because not much changes and if it does um it just seems to get worse, not better. Yeah. There are no good days with Dan. There are days that are just less worse. <laughs> yeah. You know, it's. I just think he's the most courageous person I've ever met, Unbelievable. Yeah. because he um, he just keeps waking up. He keeps, um, I don't know how he's not insane. I actually read a paper last night about psychosis um, and ME-CFS because of the low sensory environment that very severe patients are in. And he is in a very low stimulus environment he has he wears an eye mask he wears earplugs and his room is dark we are very quiet in the house in fact most of our days are outside or across the other side of the house I usually cook outside um, because the smell can upset Dan Um, so that worries me that he's although he did write a note a few months ago saying I really am losing my mind.
1: How, so, how sorry for you as a mother to get that note because I know he's written other notes to you yeah. that have been unbelievably traumatic for you to read. Um, tell us how you cope with that. I'm not sure that I do. And
2: I'm really not sure that I cope um, at all.
0: Um, There's
2: nothing I can do. I cannot comfort him with words. I cannot hug him. He can't tolerate being spoken to. He can't tolerate being touched. And if I went to touch him and he didn't, Initiated at first, that would alarm him, and any alarm raises his heart rate and pushes him over that uh, limit of energy that he's got that little tiny envelope of energy that he's got. So, that could possibly cause a crash. And with each crash, when the crash has subsided, that functional baseline just seems a smidgen lower, a smidgen lower. So I never want to tempt fate and think things can't get any worse because with ME they can and they do just keep getting worse. And that's the thing that amazes me when we started this a few years ago is that no one said, hang on, you guys, this is what can happen. So to try and ameliorate that or try and halt it, this is what we'll do. Everything that we've discovered along the way, it's after the fact and it's too late to do anything.
1: So can you tell me and tell the listeners, because your story is going to be unbelievably compelling to those people listening to this podcast, where did it all begin for Dan with his loop, as you put it, of me Um.
2: Well, he was an adult and he was travelling with his fiancée and they were on the East Coast and he was practising MMA at a gym and got a knock to the head and possibly a slight concussion and he rang me a couple of days later and he said, "Mom, you know, this is what happened and I've had this headache and it just won't go away. And it's almost... That's when we think it started. Um, I'm a little bit unsure. I don't know whether it's, uh, you know, I read so much about glandular fever um, being the start for so many people and he did have that a few years before that and was very unwell. But because he just started his carpentry apprenticeship, he didn't, want to stop you know only took a little bit of time off and really pushed himself so I don't know whether it's because you know the Epstein-Barr virus is like a stealth pathogen and hides in your body and it's almost opportunistic and when you run down it leaps out and yeah. takes over again so I don't know whether you know it was a bit of that or whether the knock to the head was just the final insult and just started a cascade of these symptoms that never seemed to right themselves. So all of those things of sunshine and fresh air and exercise um, were just the worst things for Dan and he just became progressively more ill. Came back home to South Australia and um, tried to keep building, tried to do a bit of uh, subcontracting and just couldn't manage it, couldn't manage the thinking that goes with building and the measuring and the cutting and the actual physicalness of it. Um, so I had to stop work, gradually sold off all his belongings and um, we bought a house for him and his partner to live in so that he didn't have to um, put up with rent inspections and things like that um, and he just got... It was just like a slow deterioration and then in about 2019, it's like he fell off a cliff. He, he couldn't get up anymore. He could not get up and, and we all thought that he would get better. You know, he, he just would get better and he hasn't. In 2020, his relationship, Broke down, his partner left, and we had to move him home. And along with the emotional turmoil and the physical move, um, he's where he's at now. So um, I tell people his feet have not touched the floor since March 2020, which is a really long time. And we moved in. That,
1: pardon. How how do you deal with that? There are clearly such major challenges in um, supporting him just to stay alive. Can you tell us a little bit about Um, that? It's what do you just do, and you do.
2: You know, he has. We've developed this level of communication. He'll use. Fingers to point and i'll know exactly what they are he used to be able to write notes but now he only writes a note if he's very upset about something or um, he needs to tell me um, but usually we just get by on finger signals so it's you know point the left and it's water bottle and point to the floor it's bedpan um touch his lips food so his his needs his prop his needs are probably huge but he's reduced them down to these six or seven things that he can manage that without creating stress for him um so you know And things like I've got a friend who's a nurse and I was saying to her that if people came in and looked at him, they'd probably think he was neglected because he looks unkempt. He looks like a Viking that's been sheltering in the long shed over the winter, you know. He's sort of overgrown and um, just generally unwashed and unkempt, but he can't tolerate any more than what he's doing. Like any care, any personal care needs to be initiated by him so that he's actually prepared for me to touch him and that sensory, um, you know, to wash him is just too much sometimes. So we can wash bits of body parts but he needs to initiate it. So for, for him... Like he couldn't go into a nursing home because they have duty of care. You know, people are washed and people are fed, and, you know, it's all run to a schedule. Whereas I'm pretty sure that would kill him because he couldn't tolerate it. He couldn't, he, and any care needs to be done quietly, quickly, and in really low light because he can't tolerate any light. So, I've developed this whole new skill set, uh, which I really don't want, but have so that I can care for Dan as effectively as we can at this point in time. I think that we're just waiting for a big medical breakthrough.
1: Yeah, um, I mean, you know, that's what I think everyone's waiting for, but in your case, <laughs> more than anyone else. I was yeah. about to ask you, what? Do the doctors tell you? I mean, or do you just not go to the doctor anymore because you find that their information is irrelevant?
2: The doctors actually ask me. I tell them because they're quite happy to um, listen to me because I'm the one who knows what's going on. You know, he and he hasn't actually seen a health professional for well since he's been home because he can't tolerate the thought of another person in the room. He just can't can't deal with it. It terrifies him. Um he becomes quite anxious about it.
1: Why do you so- think it terrifies him? I find that interesting. Is it because of the additional noise and the fear that it will put more burden on his the the tiny bit of energy that he has or I believe so yeah. or they'll
2: or they'll try and talk to him and he can't understand what they're saying he cannot if I'm going to if I have to say something to him for example I have to stand next to the bed this is after whatever I've done to care for him and I'll lightly tap his shoulder and I can see him processing, or she wants to say something, so he will take an earplug out and listen. And I'll have to convey a message reduced down to three words, or however succinctly I can, so that he can think about it, process it, and get back to me. You know. So the thought of a doctor coming in and even saying, "Hi, Dan, let me do this," blah blah blah. This is. It just overwhelms
1: him, so, so he just cannot tolerate it. Does he ever have any medical tests or no, no? He he doesn't.
2: He hasn't for three years. He hasn't had bloods taken. I um, I work with his GP, who's wonderful and would love to come and have a home visit. And I know that we're very fortunate like that because a lot of ME sufferers can't find a GP to visit them. I also have um, Skype meetings with his rheumatologist, who's based in the um, nearest capital city in Adelaide, and he's great because he's quite knowledgeable about ME/CFS. So every two months he touches base, and even if it's for us just to wring our hands and say no, nothing's changed, but just to monitor what's going on I guess and just to make us feel that we haven't been completely
1: abandoned by the medical profession so so I can't imagine what's the impact on the rest of your family what what's the impact on you as a mother um you know tell us a little bit about you and what this is all doing to you and what kind of support you get for you well as
2: Dan's world has shrunk our world has shrunk because with Dan's buzzer this is the most effective one we've found um, it works 50 meters away from him so I can go 50 meters and I carry this little white box with me everywhere it's like it's attached um by an invisible rubber band and because he can buzz at any time um because he needs help so my world has shrunk and before we got a dog a year ago um I didn't leave home at all probably once a month to go into town. Um, And that was mainly because of the pandemic and we didn't want to expose ourselves. We were shielding. Dan's not vaccinated, my husband and I are, but we were just kind of shielding. But even then, um, Michael doesn't feel really confident, that's my husband, um, looking after Dan because he's worried that he'll be and noisy and he'll miss a little cue and he'll get it wrong and Daniel will be stressed and, you know, away we go. Yeah, there you've got a chain reaction then. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So um, but now um, it seems that Dan, after the 6 o'clock morning buzz, Dan doesn't buzz till 10 30 so in that little window of time if I've got any appointments that's when I book them for that's when I walk the dog um we've got a 100 acre block on the side of a hill overlooking the bay like if I had to be home all the time like I am and look out at a fence I'd probably be stuck raving mad but as it is we've got a, a lovely garden and a gorgeous view and good friends who come for coffee and we sit outside um in the goat shed and uh yeah so i get by i do talk to a psychologist who's me aware yeah um once a month i walk the dog every day i have a lovely supportive husband who um you know we we Make up little stories about what we're going to do when Jane gets better.
1: Sorry. (laughs) But you know what? It's tough. It's tough. But you've got to make up those stories because somehow you've got to still dream um, and they're important for your emotional well being. And uh, I just honestly can't imagine. How tough and to add to your woes, I think you had fires in your area.
2: Yeah, we did. In sixteenth um, of February this year, we had a fire that burnt up to within ten meters of the front deck of the house, and that was pretty scary because um, we couldn't leave. You know, we we always knew we'd have to stay and defend. Um, because we couldn't move Dan, and, you know, even though the doctor said, but you would have to move him. Well, the fact is that the fire, by the time we found out it was alight and burning, within I think about 15 minutes we'd got texts on our phones um, saying too late to leave. So even even if our plan was to evacuate Dan, we couldn't have. There was no time. Luckily we've got it. Oh, you just have to excuse me. Did you hear that? Did you hear that, we Buzz? Did. Yeah. Yep, I'll be did. back. No problem.
0: You're right. Yep. Yep. Oh, good. Cool.
2: So where were we? The fires. Yep. Terrifying. Well, I,
1: I can't begin to believe how you know, dreadfully afraid you must have been or challenged you must have been at that time knowing you couldn't move Dan, you know, if those fires had come onto your house, I mean, you would have all faced being caught up in the fire. That must have been so. Uh,
2: Yes, it was probably, it was very scary at the time and it's, It's even scarier after the fact because you can think of all the what ifs. Yeah, that's right. So, um, But at the time things were happening pretty quickly and I think I was more worried that the power was going to go out, which would mean that Dan wouldn't have his air conditioner in his room or the air purifier. And um, the gods must have been smiling at us because the power didn't go out, which is astonishing. Yeah. So, but it was very scary for Dan because um, he he did buzz me, and I went in, and I sort of had to grab his hand and say, um, "It's a fire," and he nodded because he could hear all of the sirens and the planes and the helicopters and the fire engines and. Um, and he nodded so um, and then later when it was out I, I could tell him it was out and probably about five days after that then one night quite late he called me in and was playing sort of charades with two fingers trying to communicate um oh that's right he wrote about fire on on his notepad, and I said, "Oh no, the fire's out." And he must have thought, "I oh, know that woman. He must get so frustrated." Bear in mind that Dan was probably the cleverest of us all. One, you could never win an argument with Dan, so he must find it so frustrating about fire. He said, and and I said, "No, no, it's out." And he shook his head and pointed to me, and I said, "Ah, oh, we're okay." dad and I are okay and he nodded and then he said he mouthed how close and it took me a while to work out that's what he was actually saying and I said oh 10 meters and he just slowly nodded and um and then he just put his hands up which means that's it go away (laughs) so he he just it took a while like a few days for him to ask those questions but he wanted to know so so it was scary it was very scary
1: spoken about the impact on you know your family your husband what about Dan's brother
0: yeah
2: I do worry about that um there is six years difference between them but um they were close and Mitch hasn't seen him to go into him and see him for years. And when he was home uh, not that long ago, I said to him, "You can stand in the doorway while I'm in there. Dan won't even know you're there." And he said uh, he didn't feel comfortable with that. I guess because he felt like it was almost some sort of voyeur thing. He didn't. He didn't like it. So. But every year um, Daniel remembers his birthday and says, writes a note, happy birthday to Mitch. (laughs) And we didn't know how he was keeping track of the days. Um, I still don't really know how he keeps track of the days, but he does. And I guess that gives him an anchor. It's only in the last six months he requested, wrote a note, talking clock. So, um, uh, people with vision impaired people, it's you press it and a voice tells you the time. So he does keep track of the time like that, but I don't know how he keeps track of the days. I don't know. You
1: know, when I listen to you speak, you know i I can't fathom the degree of grief that. You, your husband, and Mitch must must cope with you know the 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 loss of the life that you thought you would have, the loss of loss of a son's health that you would never have expected would decline like this. And then the impact of of Dan's health on all of you, on the family. The sense of isolation, despite the fact that you talk about your friends coming up, I just—the grief must be so intense, and yet you strike me as someone who's got great resilience. You know, um, you said before you don't know whether you're optimistic, but <laughs> I hear you say,
2: delusionally optimistic. <laughs>
1: but you know what when i hear you speak i i feel this sense of resilience that i think only a mother could have and someone will shout me down when i say that but you know you're always striving to to do something that will potentially improve the life of your son so um if that's just a statement I'm making. I'm actually not asking you a question about that. But um, make no mistake, Anne. These days, where I could just lay on the floor and weep, <laughs> I'm sure. So, can you talk to our listeners about the importance of having some form of a support network around you, whether that be friends that pop in or whether that be um, going and seeing a therapist on a regular basis so that you can actually discuss what it is that you're feeling inside. Can you give us a sense of that? It's
2: huge. It's huge. I, If I couldn't talk to my husband and my friends and send them articles, I feel that that's all i do talk about is mecfs and it's it's taken over our lives it's not like i read about these people who can sort of detach themselves from it but it's it's so much a part of us now and because not not to any way undermine the suffering that people go through but i feel like I'm part of it as well. You know, I'm the part that can talk and say, help, help. You know, I'm we're drowning, not waving. <laughs> you need to listen. You really need to listen. But so I talk to everyone about it. I read as much as I can about it. And I've got a dog. And honestly, he was a rescue, but I think he rescued me because honestly, I like dogs more than some people I know. So
1: <laughs> um,
2: he's just lovely.
1: Oh, that's just so beautiful. So, just a couple of final questions: what do you what do you believe needs to be done to bring about change for people and carers of those with ME, CFS, and long COVID? I mean, this is really you know a question that's targeting government investment but you know from your perspective as a carer
2: it definitely needs to be more than half a page in the medical curriculum i did ask um the gps um he had a medical student with him one day and i said did you learn about this in medical school and she said half a page and i thought hmm so I think that in the medical curriculum it needs to be much more post viral illnesses yeah. I believe that a quicker diagnosis would be much better and I believe that when you are diagnosed because it is a chronic illness I really wish that Dan had been diagnosed and sent straight away to a cardiologist and a definite recommendation to see a therapist or a psychologist or someone who can give them coping strategies because the sensory deprivation and isolation that he experiences—I don't know how he's doing it. I don't know what um, strategies he's got. Like, I think that we all. Could do with some more. So, the education for GPs, just the raising general awareness. I've got two nurses in the family who'd never heard of this before. Now, as far as I can see, it, MECFS was declared a disease, it wasn't it, by the World Health Organization 60 years ago. And 60 years later, all they're saying is to rest. Well, for goodness sakes, surely, surely we can come up with something therapeutic better than that. Surely, um, so yeah, earlier diagnosis, more education for GPs, but starting right at the beginning, not after the fact. Like, we need to get it into the medical curriculum so it's not dismissed. Um, and just all the allied health, just explaining to um to so many people, Dan's situation, and you know having to move past that. and I just get so tired
1: sometimes telling people what's wrong with him.
2: <laughs> and I, I don't know when it's going imagine, to get better
1: and and some of the people you'd be telling it to wouldn't necessarily believe it because it, it's just the amount of pain and trauma and and disability um, that your son experiences. You know, it's, it's unbelievable. And I know from previous conversations, you know, sometimes he feels like giving up, doesn't he?
2: Yes. A couple of months ago he was really really down i suggested to him you know work. so whenever something has to be suggested to dan it's creates angst for me because i have to try and work out a really good time to suggest it i have to um shorten it down condense this message down into three or four words and have to choose my time to convey this message this was a message about retrialing a a drug that he had trialled before and it didn't agree with him. And he, um, so I said it and he put his hands up like, no, that's it, go away. So I went away and then he called me back in about 20 minutes later and he'd written a note and he said, I'm not interested in trying anything anymore. I just want to die. If I can't take my mask off and if I can't get out of bed, I just want to die. In South Australia, we've just at the beginning of the year um, passed um, VAD, like the euthanasia laws, and Michael and I, my husband and I, talked about it and said, if Dan knew about that, he he would want to do it. He would want to do it. no question. But the thing is, he wouldn't um qualify because his is a term it's not a terminal illness, it's a chronic illness, and he's not going to die within six or twelve months. But there's studies out there that show that his quality of life, is worse than someone with end stage AIDS or stage four cancer. So even with um,
0: these VAD laws, he, you know,
2: is exempt from them too. So, yes, if he had the means and the opportunity, there is no question in my mind that he um,
0: would commit suicide.
2: But, you see, he's he's too sick and he doesn't have the opportunity or the means. So he's destined to live in this semi-world, in realms of misery for I don't know how long. I don't know. I remember asking the doctor once, will he die? And he said, yes, he will, but not not for a while. And I don't know whether I found that strangely comforting or strangely alarming.
0: But, yeah, I'm thinking
2: Dad's not the only one out there that's as sick as he is. There's lots of people. I really wish he would see. A medical person, a medical professional, but he won't. And if I insisted and brought someone in, then he wouldn't trust me. And I'm all he's got., yeah, and if he can't trust me, yeah, imagine imagine that, imagine so being so vulnerable that you've only got one person you can trust. And they do something like that.
1: And just sort of, and I'm taking a little bit of extra time, Jane and, and, and Andrew, but just going back over the discussion of grief, do you get angry? Yes.
0: Yes. Angry that I didn't
2: know about this illness before it got to this stage that I didn't do more and insist on him seeing other people, other medical professionals, um, angry that there was no clear pathway of who what to do or who to see or yeah, there's days I'm so angry that I feel that my hair should catch on fire. <laughs> And there's days where I'm so sad.
1: That's part of part of the grief that you, as as the closest person to Dad, um, are experiencing. How do you yeah. deal with that on a day to day basis?
0: Uh, some
2: days are better than others. Some days the sun shines and I can distract myself a little bit more. But some days
0: Dan's misery is so engulfing that it's just hard, it's very hard to
1: just exist. Yes, yeah, of course. My very final question, you've just been so wonderful in sharing with us and we're so appreciative, but my very final question is do you have any messages of hope to the listeners out there who might be in your position or might have ME-CFS severely themselves or just have it? Is there anything you can find to say that, Might make them feel better.
2: There's much more awareness now than there was even four or five years ago. Much, much more awareness. And pretty soon, someone really famous or notable is going to come down with this horrendous illness. And then things will really, really happen. That's what I think.
1: It's very, very unfortunate when we have to rely on someone famous or a politician, dare I say, or their family to come down with uh, an illness as severe as me CFS can be, which you've demonstrated very clearly through Dan, that we we almost that we need that level of 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 public awareness to create change. I guess the challenge we all face is getting the message home to our members of parliament mm-hmm. about the impact that this disease has on the person with it and their carers and really working together to ensure that as a society we do something about this disease that appears to have um, fallen under the radar forever. And and I guess that's our challenge. It's your challenge with your physicians and, and with Dan's situation, and it's our challenge as Emerge Australia to keep fighting and keep ensuring that you have a voice and that Dan has a voice because that's what you're doing for us today when you're speaking to us on this podcast. So, Lynn Harris, I thank you from the bottom of my heart (laughs) for your time and for your willingness to be vulnerable and to share your experiences as a mother and as a carer um and um Emerge Australia is always here for you and we'll continue to do whatever we can to support you and support Dan and support your family and um you are an unbelievable warrior and um your resilience is just amazing and um you know, our hearts go out to you and, and once again, thank you so much um for sharing with us today. Really appreciate it. Thanks, Anne. Thanks for thanks for listening and thanks for asking. <laughs> that's that's our pleasure. So this Emerge Australia podcast series seeks to speak to people of influence and most importantly to ensure that the voices of people impacted by ME-CFS are heard. This is a platform where we can together explore the pressing issues faced by 250,000 people with ME-CFS and at least 400,000 more with long COVID. Dan Harris, one of the 60,000 people in Australia who are bedbound and housebound with ME-CFS. We need these issues to be addressed by government. It's just not good enough for this patient cohort to keep falling under the radar. So we urge anyone listening here today to speak to your local members of parliament. Speak to our Minister, Mark Butler. There are funding submissions before government today that need to be funded, that will make a difference to the clinical education of our GPs around Australia, to the clinical guidelines that need to be developed. But they need federal government investment. So I would urge anyone listening here today uh, for more information to go to the Emerge Australia website. Which is www.emerge.org.au. Subscribe to our Emerge Australia newsletter that provides up to date information of what's going on in the Emerge Australia world. And please tune in for our next interview. Um, And um, Lynn, thank you. Um, We wish you all the best. We're there with you in your fight. And We wish you all the very best for you, your family, and, of course, for Dan. Thank you so much. Bye for now. Thanks, Anne. Bye.
0: You may say that I'm a dreamer
1: But I'm not the only one And
0: I hope someday you'll do This one.